Last week, uh, we started a new series called Giants, and we asked the question, uh, what are you facing? And uh, I hope you've been pondering that question and thinking through that as you evaluate your life and look into your heart and ask the question, what is it that you're facing? Last week, we invited you to come to the altar and to grab a rock out of one of these pots here on the altar, and if you weren't here last week, I want to invite you after the service today to come and get one. Uh, we, we dealt with the most famous story in all of Scripture, David and Goliath, and we talked about giants in, in the land that we need to beat. We talked about the giants in this land, uh, this temple uh, of the Holy Spirit, and we, and we asked you to come and get a rock and to identify the giants in your life and then to write the sword. Uh, the scripture reference on that rock to put it on your kitchen table or coffee table and for the next several weeks to pray uh, through it. We identified a corporate giant that we were facing together and uh, that's the delay of Midtown and the campus there at 38th and Lewis and we're praying that God would slay that giant and allow us to uh, open that campus on Easter Sunday. And so I want to encourage you to be a part of that journey with us. I led you last week at the end of the service in a prayer of deliverance uh, where you were uh, slaying uh, giants in your own land and you're identifying iniquities of the fathers in your own life and generational and ancestral uh, issues in your life. Uh, hundreds of you have asked for that prayer uh, that, that I prayed at the end of the service last week. It's on our webpage. Uh, that's not original with me. That comes from uh, a lady who adapted it in our town named Susan Morris and uh, I'm going to introduce you to her sometime in the future. But uh, that prayer is a prayer of taking uh, the things that our fathers did multiple generations back and calling it iniquity and calling it sin and going into your life and cutting those things away from your life. And uh, I want to encourage you to download that and to pray that prayer uh, so that you can gain power over the enemy in your life, understanding that the battle is God's. We talked about that last week. And uh, the misnomer that comes with saying the battle is God's is that you and I don't have to show up for battle. And the truth of the matter is, is we do have to show up for the battle, and we have a role to play in the battle. The battle being the Lord's means simply that He is the source of victory for our lives. And, and so over the next few weeks, I want to show you some of the giants, and I want to show you how to use uh, the strategy found in the Word of God to slay giants in your life. And, and today, what I want to do for a moment is I want to hit rewind. And I want us to back up in Scripture uh, just a little bit. We were going to move forward in Scripture, but because uh, of the chord that was struck in the lives of so many people last week, I want to rewind, and I want to go back just a little bit. We talked about the battle of David and Goliath, most popular story in the entire Old Testament. And one of the things that we said last week is that it could be uh, the battle of Saul and Goliath. Saul was the king of Israel. At the time, and he could have slayed the giant in, in Goliath. It was Saul's giant to kill, quite honestly, but he wasn't ready, willing, or able uh, in, in the Lord to do what it was that God had anointed him to do. And the question immediately comes up why? Why was he not ready, willing, and able? And so I want to hit rewind. I want to go back a couple of chapters into 1 Samuel 15, and, and I want to learn when Samuel anointed Saul to be king over Israel, the Bible tells us that Saul was a handsome man. He was head and shoulders taller than anyone else. He, uh, by all of his outward appearances, he was the perfect person to be king. But God sees into our hearts. And, and his word can cut into our soul, into the marrow uh, of our life, which is the life source in a human being. And, and God knew that Saul had issues. God knew that Saul had giants in the land that he needed to deal with. And uh, even though everyone else would say, Saul has it all together. 
But the people cried for a king other than God. Now you got to know that this whole kingdom in the people of Israel and in the nation of Israel was not God's idea. God wanted to be their king. He desired to be their only king. And the people cried for another king like the other nations have. And they said, the other nations have kings, God. We want a king uh, to come and rule over us. And any time you take the things that you desire and you place it above God, it becomes an idol in your life, which is idolatry, which is sin, which leads to big-time problems in your life. And God uh, knew that, and and he said, quite honestly, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give you what you're asking for. And Saul was anointed king, and God warned them and said, if you end up having a king, here's what's going to happen. You can go back and read these passages of Scripture where he says, they're going to take your sons and put them on chariots. They're going to take your daughters. They're going to take your land. Uh, The king is not going to be good for you in the way that this plays out, but that's what you want, and so I'm going to give it to you. 1 Samuel 15 is where we see things start really, quite honestly, unraveling for Saul. And Saul, in that passage of Scripture, really is the portrait of a man who refused to settle his issues, who refused to deal with past sins. We even see ancestral iniquities left there to fester in his life, and as he pushed further and further into rebellion, and further and further into disobedience, God gave him over to the things that ruled his life. And you see that over and over and over in Scripture that God gives his kids over. And the God of the universe giving his kids over, lest you misunderstand that, that is not some mean God up in heaven uh, wanting to harm his children. That is a good God, a gracious God, declaring to his children, if you go that way, here are the consequences, and here's what's going to happen to you. Just as a father would say to his child, do not run out in the road. If you do, this is what will happen. That's exactly what our gracious Heavenly Father did all throughout Scripture with his people. And you see Saul's life, uh, what the things that happened in Saul's life started with small, minor issues. But I want you to watch in this passage of Scripture how these little, small issues left unchecked and undealt with can become giants that enslave us. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. One day Samuel said to Saul, it was the Lord who told me to anoint you as king of his people Israel. Again, this is not what God wanted. He was giving them what they wanted, the desires of their heart. Now listen, I want you to circle that word listen in your Bible because it's very, very, very important in this passage of Scripture. And and the prophet of God is saying, listen to the king. Listen to this message from the Lord. Uh, If you were with us during the Abide series, that was the first key in the Abide series. We talked about if you want to abide with the Lord, abide means stay close, right? And so if you want to stay close and stay in this intimate relational relationship with Jesus Christ, it begins with listen. And in fact, I gave you four keys in the Abide series. And if you haven't listened to the Abide series, I encourage you to pick it up in the bookstore, go on the website and find it. And the four keys were to look, listen, live, and learn. And we're going to see this all throughout this passage playing out. Look at verse 2. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts. Circle that phrase, settle accounts. God settles accounts. He is the settler of accounts. And this is going to play out always in our lives. With the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now God is ready to deal with these people. He tells the king, now go and completely destroy, underline that, the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. To which if you don't understand the scripture and you read that, you say, that sounds like a genocide playing out. And what, what, what is that? And this is not a nice story here in scripture. You've got to back all the way up to Exodus 17 
to find out what this is all about. And in Exodus 17, you see the story of the Amalekites when God's children came up from Egypt, remember? And they were headed into the promised land. They encountered the children of Amalek and they fought the Israelites and they harassed the children of God as they were coming into the promised land and tried to stand between the children of God and freedom, tried to stand between the children of God and deliverance. That's the story that is playing out here. In fact, in Exodus 17, 16, God told Moses to write this down. Here's what he said. They have raised their fist against the Lord's throne. So now the Lord will be at war with Amalek generation after generation. The Amalekites are a type and shadow of generational curse. And you watch this play out in the Old Testament. As you study the Amalekites all throughout Judges, all the way up to 1 Samuel, they become a burr under Israel's saddle. They are a thorn to them time and time again, over and over and over again. They're harassing the children of God nearly 500 years. This has been going on, and God says, enough. And I'm going to deal with them once and for all. They are a type and shadow of the things not dealt with in the lives of the children of God. God says, enough. And he says, Saul, I'm sending you in to completely destroy them. That word completely destroy is the Hebrew word cherim. It means to devote to destruction. Sometimes it's talking about sacrifice, but oftentimes it's used to mean uh, set apart so that something can be completely destroyed. Not sacrificed, but to be thrown away. Uh, There is a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and as you look at the Septuagint, the Greek word there is anathema. Now, some of you who studied Scripture, you know that word anathema. In Galatians, you see that word play out where Paul says, if they preach anything other than Jesus and him crucified, let them be anathema. Let them be cursed. The only way I know how to explain that to you in English is, let them be damned to hell is what anathema means. And so God is saying, enough. We need to send this junk back to where it came from, and we need to cut it off at the root, and we need to destroy it. This, we need to cleanse this ancestral thing and this curse. So what does Saul do? Look at verse 7. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. Now I want you to stop right there for a second. Why on earth would God see to it that, that centuries later, These names are mentioned in this passage of Scripture. What's the relevance to us today? Shur is on the east coast of the Red Sea. Havilah is on the west coast of the Persian Gulf. This is the land that is north uh, Saudi Arabia. Today it's called the Arabian Desert. And and probably most of you don't study the Middle Eastern geography, and that's okay. But, But when you look these names up in the Bible, what you find in Genesis 25, verse 18, it says this. This is where the Ishmaelites lived. You know who the Ishmaelites are? As you study Scripture and you go back in Scripture, you find out that Ishmael was the son of Abraham. Not through his wife Sarah, but through his maid. And and this, as you read it in Galatians, plays out is a type and shadow of the sin that enslaves us. This is how this plays out in Scripture. This is the son. Ishmael is the son of the flesh. He's not the son of faith, and he's not the son of the promise of God for the people of God. Isaac, right, was the son of promise. Isaac was the son of freedom. Ishmael was the son of slavery. And the Ishmaelites were a sign of that ancestral curse that was not broken and did not play out properly before the Lord. That phrase there, uh, east of Egypt, when you see that play out, you know what that's an allusion to, right? That's an allusion to the Exodus. Over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture, you see out of Egypt. Even of Jesus, it says, I called my son out of Egypt. You see it over and over and over again in Scripture. When, it, when the Scripture says out of Egypt, what's God talking about? One thing, deliverance. 
deliverance for his children. Every time you see that, God's reminding the children of Israel of their heritage. He's reminding the children of Israel of their inheritance that deliverance is theirs, and it is ours too. As the children of God, deliverance belongs to us. I want to show you just for a second. I just want to sidebar for a minute. Matthew chapter 15. I'm reading this passage of Scripture in the one-year Bible several weeks ago, and I want to show you this. And uh, Meredith, this is the first time Meredith has done the one-year Bible with me. She, she's done other things, but this year she's decided to do the one-year Bible. In fact, we're doing it as a community group, which has sparked some incredible conversation. And so as we're reading it, because we're on the same page, reading the same verses of Scripture every day, now our conversations are related to, hey, did you read that? What does that mean, and what is that, how does that work out? And, and see, I'm okay with Scripture. That, you know, I, come, I read Scripture sometimes, and I, it troubles me a little, but I just put a big question mark on it and move on. Meredith doesn't. She said, what is that story about? And in fact, Jesus sounded rude in that story. And how, how does that play out? And so I'm pondering this, and I'm studying this, and, and trying to have this conversation with my wife. Matthew 15, I, I want to show you this. In verse 22, it says, a Gentile woman came to him. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, for my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. Okay, so you get the picture of what's happening here. This Gentile woman is coming, and, and she's coming from Tyre and Sidon. Those are two of the cities mentioned in the list of cities where Jesus cursed the cities, uh, Chorazim and Bethsaida and, and other places. If you, if you, uh, I, I know the joke around here is that I, you know, I say all the time, if you go with me to Israel, if you just sign up and go, well, I'd quit saying that. But... but when you walk with your feet and you see with your eyes Chorazim, one of the cities that Jesus cursed thousands of years ago, and as you look at that city today, thousands of years later, and it looks like a nuclear bomb went off in it, and it looks like fire has just set that city to fire, and nothing grows there. Why? Because the Son of God said, you are cursed and he cursed that city. And as this plays out throughout Scripture, Jesus said, had the place where this lady is from received what you received, they would have repented. And so this lady is coming from this place. She is a Gentile woman, and she wanders upon Jesus, and she says, my daughter's possessed by a demon. Now, just in case you misunderstand this, he means demon. This is the fallen angel of God. This is not alcoholism. This is not something that you and I, this is a demon. It's demonic. It's of the devil. And that's what this lady is saying. My daughter is possessed by a devil. Verse 24, I was sent only, Jesus replies, to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and she worshiped him, pleading again, Lord, help me. And he said, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. To which Meredith had a real problem. What this Jesus calling this woman a dog? You go study the word dog in Scripture, you, put, you end up in Revelation. In Revelation, you see that outside the gates of heaven were evil spirits and were dogs. Who's outside the gates of heaven? Lost people, people that don't know Jesus. And you see there's a reference to lost people. He wasn't calling her a dog. He was saying those outside the gates, those who are not a part of my children, those who do not have a relationship with Jesus in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, those who are Gentiles are referred to as dogs. He was not being rude to her. He's saying that's not for the dogs, that's for the children. The word there literally says this. The children's bread. The children's bread. What is the children's bread? Well, you read the scripture over and over and over again. In this, He's not talking about anything other than demons and being delivered from them. The children's bread is deliverance. And what Jesus is saying is deliverance is for the children of God. Now, those of you who think that the devils don't bother the children of God, why is that for them? 
<laughs> it's for them. It is the children's bread. It's for the children of God. Deliverance doesn't belong to those who don't belong to God. Why? Because they're already possessed by the enemy. They, God can't do anything in their lives until they come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus is saying here is deliverance is for the children of God. Now think about this, bread being the children's bread. What does bread represent in Scripture? Go back over and over and over and over, and over again. Remember the Exodus? Remember what God said to the children as they came out of uh, Egypt and they, they were headed into the promised land uh, and deliverance is happening? Exodus 12 says they were told to eat bread. It was a special bread, right? It was unleavened bread. What's unleavened bread? It means it doesn't have any yeast in it. It doesn't have any leaven in it. Yeast or leaven is a type in the Old Testament for sin. It was a picture in the way that this played out, Exodus 12 says, every year you will eat this, this unleavened bread, as a memorial of deliverance. That's what the scripture is talking about for the children of God. For seven days the bread you eat must be made without yeast. On the first day of the festival, every trace of yeast must be removed from your house. They had to remove all the yeast from their house. I, I read uh, about the Jewish game that they play with their kids that around this time of the year the the father or the grandfather would go in the house and would hide pieces of yeast or leaven all over the house to to show and to teach the children this and just like you and I would hunt easter eggs these jewish children run all over the house looking for the leaven and they find all the leaven when they find all the leaven which represents hidden sin in the home hidden sin in the lives, hidden sin in the lives of the children of God. They would take all of that leaven out of the house and they would take it into the yard and then they would burn it in the yard. They, they had to search it out, to search for the yeast in their home and to cleanse it completely. It's a picture of the hidden sin. So you go back to this passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel. Saul chases the Amalekites all through that territory because he's on a mission from God and his mission was to slay that generational curse. Look at verse 8. He captured Agag, the Amalekite king. But he completely destroyed everyone else. Do you remember God's instruction? God had said, I want it all gone. You cut it off at the head. When David slew uh, Goliath, he hit him with a slingshot, hit him with a rock in the head. But it was important to go to that giant to take a sword and to cut that giant's head off. This was the head of this giant. This was the head of this curse. And they let him live. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep and the goats and the cattle and the fat calves and the lambs, everything, in fact, look at this phrase, that appealed to them. What's that remind you of? It's the lust of the eyes, right? When you read about it in Scripture, it says that they destroyed everything that was worthless or of no value, poor quality, and God had said, kill all of them, remove the iniquity, settle it once and for all. But Saul decided to keep some of it back, to hold on to it because he liked it. And that phrase, appealed to them, is something that I think hits home to most of us in the room. Over in 1 John chapter 2, I think verse 16, it says there are three main ways that the enemy traps us. For the world offers only, what, a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and the pride of our achievements and possessions. These these are not from the Father. These are not from the Father is what the Scripture says. So many times I see people who say they want to be free and they're living in sin. And they aren't free because they keep getting trapped by the same old sins. And there are times, it's very, very sad, but you can see it coming. Right? I mean, you, it's telegraphed in their lives. They don't walk in freedom because, quite frankly, they like sin. They like it. 
they're comfortable in it. And it's sin, and they know it's sin. But they feel safe in the sin, and they feel comfortable in the sin, and there is a need being met, and you know that it's going to destroy them. You know that. I mean, if you read any scripture, you know that. Am I hitting home? Some of you today, I'm on the front porch, aren't I? And as this plays out in Scripture, some of you haven't dealt with that sin because you like it. And you don't want to stop, and you are giving ground. Listen to your pastor. You are giving ground to the enemy in your life. And he is not going to help you from that ground. He is going to harm you from that ground. And he will take a small piece by small piece by small piece. And the enemy may seem small now, but it is going to fester. It is going to grow in your life. And eventually there's a giant standing at your door ready to kill you. Now look what happens when you don't take care uh, of the iniquity in your life. Look at verse 10. Then the Lord said to Samuel, I am sorry. The worst verses in Scripture. I am sorry that I ever made Saul. For he has not been loyal to me, and he has refused to obey my commands. Samuel, the prophet of God, was so deeply moved when he heard this, he cried out to the Lord all night long. Why is Samuel so upset? Because Saul had made a mess of his life. You know people like that, right? you got family members like that. you got friends like that. Their lives are being destroyed, and you weep for them, and you are saddened for them, but they're making their own decisions, and, and you can see it in their lives, and you would stop them if you could. It is a train wreck waiting to happen, and you watch this play out. How did this happen in these, in these scriptures and in this story? The, these little bitty sins crept into Saul's life, gained a foothold, started to rot him from the inside out. Saul should have been repenting. In this passage of Scripture, turning from sin and making it right, but instead he's falling back into his old ways. He's falling back into the ancient traps. Let me show you from Saul's life why he couldn't beat the giant. And let me just begin today by giving you four ways to let giants kick your tail. Four ways for giants to beat you. The first one is this. Believe the enemy's lies. Believe the enemy's lies. Verse 3, Samuel goes to find Saul to deliver the message from God. Verse 13, I'm, I'm sorry. Saul greeted him cheerfully and said, may the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's command. It is a flat out lie. And he is saying blessings, but he's speaking a curse. He, he, he is lying to the prophet of God. He, he, he is taking the words of God and he is twisting them just like the serpent in the Garden of Eden. He is believing the lies of enemies. This is a war of what? Words. It is a war of words playing out here. But even worse, he's speaking a blessing with his lips, but he is giving a false blessing. And, and quite honestly, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 15, that same passage I was just in a minute ago in Matthew 15. And Jesus says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And as Jesus talks about the, these people who are honoring him with their lips, in fact, Jesus comes back and says, their worship is a farce. I don't like it, and it's not acceptable to me, Jesus says. And the question is, are you honoring him with your mouth but dishonoring with your heart? Is your worship a farce because your heart is far from him? You come here and you worship God with your words, but outside here you dishonor him with the sin in your lives. It's twisting the word of God. It's a double-edged sword. 
brings blessing and it brings curse. And if your heart is far from him, it brings curse into your life. Samuel calls Saul out on his sin. Look at verse 14. Then what about all this bleeding of sheep and the goats and the lowing of the cattle I hear? Great question, right? You, you, you did what you were told. What is, what is all this? What are all these animals? And wh- why am I hearing all of this? It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep, the goats, and the cattle, but they're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. You ever play that game with God? God, I'll, I'll receive this dishonestly, or I'll go about this in a way that's not honoring to you, but I'll give it. And I'll use it for the kingdom, to which God says, keep it. I don't want it. And, and Saul starts to the point where he is pointing his finger elsewhere and he's blaming other people, which is the next way to make sure that giants kick your tail, is blame others. You want to face defeat in your life, you want to be enslaved by a giant in your life, then all you have to do is deflect blame. Deflect blame. Take no responsibility for your sin. When others call you out, be ready to point your fingers in five other directions, and you are ensured to have defeat and slavery. Point your finger somewhere else. It's the same thing Adam did in the Garden of Eden. Remember, he said it was the woman. He blamed Eve. He blamed the serpent. He even blamed God. But none of them put that apple in his mouth and and took his jaw and moved it up and down, forcing him to chew it. And you know what? You can say it's my parents. And it may be true, but you know what? It's time to put your big boy pants on or your big girl pants on. And it's time to call it sin. It's time to call it iniquity. And it's time to sever that in your life and and, and to move on. You say, that's just my personality. The reality is, when you say that, that you are embracing past sins and iniquities and calling it a personality trait. The truth is when we do that, we deny who God has made us to be. We're denying it, which is the third thing, denying your identity. You want giants to whip your tail? Deny your identity. Look at verse 17. Saul denied his own identity. Samuel tells him, stop and listen. Here's that word again. Listen. In Scripture again, stop and listen. Although you may think little of yourself, are you not the leader of of the tribes of Israel, the Lord God Almighty anointed you as the king of Israel. Saul didn't know who he was. He was the king of Israel, but he had self-esteem issues. He was the anointed leader of God. It's the same type of self-esteem issues we see in the church today. You are the son of God. You are the daughter of the living God, the most high God. You go back to verse 12 and you see Saul raising a monument to himself. I've seen that over and over and over again in the church, right? That that some people with low self-esteem are the most appearingly arrogant and loud and, and they boast the loudest. A lot of times it's just because they need to hear people say, we like you. And they find their self-esteem in what others think about them, not what God thinks. And Samuel's trying to get through to Saul here and and to say, God thinks highly of you. You're the king. Saul rejected who he was. Because he was rejecting who God was, which is the fourth way, the rejection of God. You want to fall in defeat to your giants, disobey God. 
disobey God. Look at verse 22. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifice or your obedience to his voice? Listen, he says. It's the third time this word listen appears in this chapter of Scripture. Listen. Hear his voice. Obedience is better than sacrifice and submission than the offerings of fat rams. We don't obey God sometimes because we're not listening to his voice. And we get into this cycle of defeat that plays out all throughout the Old Testament, throughout the whole New Testament, and the church of Jesus today, a cycle of defeat that plays out. But there is a cycle I taught you during the Abide series. Remember, look, look to the word of God. Listen to what the Lord is saying to you. Listen to what he's saying to you. And then learn from it. And learn through your obedience. And, and then go back and, and Uh, or live, which obey, and then learn. Learn from what you did, and then you look again. And there's this cycle that plays out. Look, listen, live, learn. Look, listen, live, learn. Look, listen, live, learn. That is the pattern for the child of God that leads to a cycle of conquest and leads to a cycle of freedom. The Holy Spirit speaks through his word. He speaks through prayer. He speaks through circumstances. He speaks through his church. But you just can't talk, talk, talk. You can't hear that way when you talk, talk. You have to be quiet. And you got to be patient to spend time with God. And the only way you're going to hear him is to listen to him. And this issue of disobedience is very important. Not only very important, it's very dangerous. Look at verse 23. I wish I had three weeks to talk about this one verse of Scripture. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft personality trait no stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols are you listening to the scripture so because you rejected the command of the Lord he rejected you as queen as king rebellion is like witchcraft that is a demonic spirit That's not from God. Disobedience and stubbornness, that's not a personality trait. That's a spirit. And the spirit is not from God. And it's not the way he made you, and it's not the way he intended you to live your life. And you may say, I just have a stubborn streak. You need to look deeper. And you need to go into your heart of hearts and find that spirit. Because God is not the author of that spirit of rebellion. Who is the author of the spirit of rebellion? Lucifer is the author of the spirit of rebellion. There's a father to that spirit, and it's not God Almighty. And the children of Israel, they should have recognized it. They've seen it before. They've watched this play out. Back when Joshua was leading them, remember Moses was dead. He hands the mantle of of leadership off to Joshua, and they go into the promised land. And they go into the very first city of Jericho, and he told them, destroy everything. Cherim, the Hebrew word. It is devoted to destruction, except for I want in the first city, I want the gold and the silver and all that. He said it is mine. You know what that is? There were ten cities that the children of God took over, and he wanted the first tenth. It's a tithe. He takes it very, very seriously. And you want to play around with your money, and you want to play around with the things that God has blessed you with, you are setting yourself up for destruction. Trust God. Obedience. Where our worship is not a farce. I'm taking the first tenth and I'm giving it to God. But there was a man named Achan. Remember, he brought sin into the camp. 
And he allowed the sin to enter, and he kept those things for himself. He, he, he kept several things. One of the things he kept, by the way, was a Babylonian coat. You know what Babylon represents in Scripture? The world's way. It's not God's way. It's the world's way. And they go into their next battle, into Ai, and they face defeat. Listen to what God tells them in Joshua chapter 7, verse 13. Get up. Get up from your defeat. Get up. Command the people to purify themselves in preparation for tomorrow. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Hidden. Say hidden. It's not visible. The sin in the camp. By the way, this is not the camp. This is the camp. Today in the New Testament, this is not the church. This is the church. This is not the temple. This is the temple. And there is sin hidden in the camp, is what he's saying. And and, and among you, Israel, there are things set apart for the Lord. You will never defeat your enemies. You will never defeat your enemies until you remove these things from among you. And to pull these things out of your lives, those things the Lord said, destroy them. Cut them off at the root. They crept into your life. They've wormed your way in. There's a little bit of yeast there, but it is rotting you to the bone. And it is giving you over to defeat. And they could not stand up and beat their enemies because of it. Church is good. God is doing some good things. And he is setting this church free. And when this church gets free, the world is going to know. And the declarations are coming. Satan, you have no place here. And when you walk out of the bedroom of your children and you walk out of that preschool classroom down there where the children are, you declare to that enemy, you're not going to get that kid. You will not have our children. You will not have our lives. You will not have our marriages. This belongs to God. This is the territory of God Almighty. So let me end today. Let me just show you how. I want to take you to a psalm written by the giant slayer, David. Psalm 139. And I want to show you in this psalm quickly three ways to beat the giant in your life. Three steps to purification. The last two verses of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Listen what David says. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Three things out of those two verses. You want to slay giants regularly in your life. Number one, ask God to search you. Ask God to search you. It is not enough for us to do self-evaluation. you got to have the searchlight of God going into this temple. Searching why? Because the heart is deceitful. That's what the scripture says. Above all things, the heart is deceitful. I can't trust my heart to search out the sin in my life. I can't trust my heart to to identify iniquity in my life. we got to have God search us. He can find the yeast in our house. He is the great one. He is the holy one. And by his holiness, he will search out our hearts if we will let him do it. If we would just get on our knees and say, God, search me. 
Like David declared, search me, God. Number two, get rid of our sin. Remove the iniquity. you got to cut it out at the root. They would take that yeast in that children's game as the Jewish kids would play, and they would take it out in the yard, and they would burn it on a fire. You know what that meant? There's no more dabbling in this sin. I'm not sticking my toe in to test the water. I'm not doing that. I'm cutting it out of my life completely, and I'm burning it, and I'm throwing it in a fire. Asking God with the breath of his mouth to annihilate that. Asking Jesus with the sword, which is his tongue, to cut that out of my life forever and ever. And leaving no room for the enemy to attack. And to bring you down. The church today is crippled. It's crippled. Not experiencing deliverance in the lives of its children because the people of God, Christ's children, are overlooking a necessary key that unlocks that door to revival. Ridding our lives of things that carry with them demonic defilement. Removing the sin from our lives. And the third one, fill your heart with God's goodness. Fill your heart with the goodness of God. So you can cut the sin out of your life, but if you don't replace it with the Word of God, when you empty yourself with all the evil in your heart, the the Bible says you leave that empty and you kick the demons out and and you don't fill it with the, the Word of God and you don't fill it with the things of God and you don't fill it with praise and worship and adoration of who God is, that demon goes and gets seven of its brothers and comes back and fills it and you're worse off than you were before. Listen, it's not enough to stop and find a new comfortable status quo. God never calls us to comfort. He says, lead me onto your everlasting path, is what David said. Lead me there. It's not about a new comfort zone. That comfort zone was sin. It's about finding a new path that leads you to the everlasting God and to the heights of the mountains that God wants us to climb and into the valleys that God wants us to go into to slay the giants in our lives. It is about finding a new path that leads you to the everlasting God. Sin's got to be replaced, taken out of our hearts. Something of God's goodness has got to be put in there. The Bible says that you and I, the church of Jesus, is to be a fruitful garden with the fruit of righteousness in our lives. And we fill that with the things of God. We do a garden the last few years at our house. My job is to pick the fruit. I'm not doing anything else. I built it. There's something I am fundamentally opposed to in gardening, and that's pulling weeds. Hate it. I'll bring a bulldozer in, pull everything out, and put new dirt in before I'm pulling all the weeds out of that stuff. It's an activity I just don't like. It's very, very harmful to ADD people. So Meredith pulls weeds. I'll chop it all down with a weed eater, and then she can pull it all out. And I'll turn it, 
and she can pull it all out and I'll turn it she can pull it all out and get it ready to plant if you've messed with flower beds at all or the shrubs around your house and you, you, you deal with this and my practice is, is regularly I will walk through the flower beds and I'll shoot round up and Mary's like you're killing everything else So you can take the weeds and, and, and you can break them off at the top and you, you can do that all you want. But when you do that, there's a problem. You see that? I don't know if we can get that up on the screen. You, you, that's the problem. It's the roots. But one of the things the Lord has been saying to me the last few weeks is, watch this, that many children of God are living in seeming victory and apparent victory because they're covering it all up. So you know what, you know what some people t- do and have told me that you can do with flower beds and stuff is that you can take newspaper and lay it on top of all of the weeds and then put new dirt on top of it and that the newspaper is somewhat biodegradable and, and the water can go through but it will kill all of the weeds and, and then you'll have good soil. There's a product out that's this paper that supposedly water can go through, but plants can't come up, and it, you know, it's supposed to give you so many years. And it does give you so many years if you do it right. But it's not guaranteed for life because it's going to break down. And you know what the problem is? The roots. It's still there. And so many children of God are living in this victory because they take the Word and they push it down 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 with the Word. But they're not doing what the Word called them to do with the sin and the iniquity in their lives. What does the Word say to do? The Word says to come and to take it out by the root. And to take it and cut it out of there. But it's not enough to cut it out of there. Now you got to take the word. Remember the scripture that said Apollos watered and I planted all that? But it's God who made it grow. That seed that is planted in your heart, it's God who makes it grow. And when we take his word and we allow the water of his word to take the seed that the Holy Spirit plants inside of us when we spend time with him, it begins to grow out of our lives. And then all of a sudden we are the fruitful garden of God. Church is getting free. We're not playing church. And you know the beautiful thing about all of that? Is that the lie the enemy tells you is that that fruitful garden is for some super Christian that I will never be. Lie. It's a lie. You are his child. What one of you who is a parent looks at your child and says, that's not for you. It's for the other kids, but it's not for you. No, 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 no. You are the child of God, and you got to take those lies, and you got to strip that stuff out, and you got to allow God to search your heart and to show you where that iniquity is and to show you the curses of the fathers and to show you the sin in your life. Some of it's not just curses of the fathers. Some of it's behavioral sin that demons come in because of lifestyle. we got to get it out. I want to lead you in another prayer this morning. 
And I want to ask you if your goal today is to pray for deliverance and to pray this warfare. If that's your goal, I want you to stand up. I want you to close your eyes. I want you to lift your hands to the Lord. If you don't want to play along, just stay seated. That's fine. you stand, I just want you to say to the Lord this morning, just say, Heavenly Father, in the chapel, I want you praying with me as well. On the internet, last week I said, if you're in the car, pull over. I've had three or four testimonies this week have said, hey, we were in the car, listening on the iPhone, and we pulled the car over on the side of the road. So if you're listening, pull over. And as you raise your hands to the Lord, say, Heavenly Father, I bow in worship and praise before you. I cover myself with the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I surrender myself completely in every area of my life to you. I dress myself only to the true living God. And I refuse any involvement of Satan. Satan, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to leave with all of your demons I bring the blood of Christ between us Heavenly Father I worship you and I give you praise I recognize that you are worthy to receive all glory, honor and praise I renew my allegiance to you I am thankful Heavenly Father that you have loved me from past eternity and that you sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world to die as my substitute. I'm thankful that the Lord Jesus Christ came as my representative and that through him you've completely forgiven me, adopted me into your family, assumed all responsibility for me, given me eternal life and the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now I'm justified. I'm thankful that you made me complete and offered yourself to me to be my help and strength. Heavenly Father, open my eyes to see how great you are, how complete your provision is for this day. I'm thankful that the victory that Jesus Christ won for me on the cross and His resurrection has been given to me and that I am seated with the Lord Jesus Christ in the heavenlies. I take my place with Him in the heavenlies. I recognize by faith that all wicked spirits and Satan himself are under my feet I declare that Satan and his wicked spirits are subject to me in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ I am thankful for the armor you've provided I put on the girdle of truth the breastplate of righteousness the sandals of peace the helmet of salvation I take up the shield of faith against all the fiery darts of the enemy. 
I take in my hand the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and I choose to use your Word against all the forces of evil in my life. I put on this armor, live and pray in complete dependence on you. Blessed Holy Spirit, I'm grateful, Heavenly Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ spoiled all principalities, all powers, made a show of them openly, triumphed over them himself. I claim all that victory in my life today. I reject all insinuations, accusations, and temptations. I affirm that the, I affirm that the Word of God is true. Choose to live today in light of God's Word. I choose, Heavenly Father, to live in obedience to you and fellowship with you. Open my eyes and show me the areas of life that do not please you. Work in me to cleanse me from all ground that's given Satan a foothold. I do in every way. Stand into all that it means to be your adopted child. And I welcome all of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Would you give the Lord a clap offering today? Guys, you lead us. Let's sing a, God, a song about our God being stronger. And then I'll come back and close this out this morning. What are you turning to Open the eyes of the There's no one like you. Not like you. Into the darkness you shine Out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you Not like you Our God is greater Our God is stronger God, you are higher than any healer, awesome and power, I got, I got, hey. hey, hallelujah, what are you turned, what are you turned into, I, you open the eyes of the blind, there's no one like you. Not like you. Into the darkness you shine. Into the darkness you shine. Out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you. Not like you. Yeah. Our God is greater. Our 
God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome and power. Our God, our God, our God, our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher than any other. Our God is healer, awesome and power. Our chapel down the hall you're watching by internet if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ that is your next step and it is your destiny that you would be saved and become a child of God the Bible says whosoever whosoever if you want to give your life to Christ would you just bow your heads and would you just pray with me and say God I know I'm a sinner I know I've messed up, but Jesus, I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord, my Savior, my forgiver. In the best way that I know how, I turn my back on sin, and I trust you alone, Jesus, to save me. And I want to thank you, Jesus, for saving me. I want to thank you, Jesus, that your blood was bigger and more powerful than my sin. And, Father, that you will cover me with that. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for saving me. I give all of my life to you 
and I surrender it to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.